Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Mark Dunlake. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an interview about the New York Renews Coalition's budget and legislative climate priorities. Then we cover, for the Peace Bucket, last week's die-in at Congressmember Paul Tonka's office to support a ceasefire in Gaza. Later on, Christophe de Maria talks about an upcoming Will Kempe Players and Creative Action Unlimited version of It's a Wonderful Life that gives unique spin to the performance experience. After that, we hear from Joseph Jenkins, author of the Humanor Handbook, the preeminent resource for composting human waste. And we finish up with uh, Kaylin McPherson, who's going to be talking to us about how his work with Hudson Mohawk Magazine gave him the skill sets to become a WAMC control room operator. But first, headlines. A report by Scenic Hudson and the Sierra Club found that 10 years after the dredging of the Hudson River by General Electric, the level of PCBs in the river and in fish has fallen slower than what the EPA has predicted. The group said that the EPA, however, disagreed with their findings. One issue apparently not addressed in the report is the impact of the state refusing to fulfill its constitutional mandate to dredge PCBs from the Champlain Canal. New York Attorney General Letitia James today filed a groundbreaking lawsuit against PepsiCo Incorporated for harming the public and the environment with the single-use plastic packaging. The Attorney General found that single-use plastic produced by PepsiCo contributes significantly to high levels of plastic pollution along the Buffalo River, pollution that is contaminating drinking water, and harming wildlife. The Court of Appeals on Wednesday heard arguments as to whether or not the independent commission established under the state constitution should be given the opportunity to redraw congressional district lines. The court last year in a narrow decision ruled that the state had failed to follow the proper procedures and had a lower court judge draw the lines, which resulted in the control of Congress switching to Republican. The governor's fiscal staff testified to legislators on Tuesday that she wants to avoid increasing taxes on the wealthy or, or rolling back increased state funding for education and health care services in response to a projected $4.3 billion deficit next year. New York increased spending by about 20% in the first two years of the COVID pandemic. One key budget issue will be funding to deal with the influx of migrants into the state. The state has $19.5 billion in its reserves or rainy day fund, but the governor does not want to use it to close the budget gap. Applications in Albany County for the second round of federal COVID relief funds are now open. A total of $8.3 million will be distributed. Nonprofit organizations hurt by the pandemic will receive $1.5 million, and community development projects will receive $6.8 million. Issues to be addressed include food, youth and elder services, transportation, health, recreation, and violence prevention. The governor has signed a bill designed to protect homeowners from deed theft. 
Deed theft involves scammers fraudulently obtaining the deed to someone's home, either through falsifying signatures or persuading the homeowner to sign away the deed under false pretenses. Amtrak services between New York City and Croton-on-Hudson in Westchester County is now expected to be largely restored by Thursday morning, through slight de- though slight delays are expected to last until Saturday. That's it for headlines. And for our first segment, Mark talks with Justine Wood about the climate, jobs, and the justice packet that New York Renews launched on Wednesday. We're talking with Justin Wood, who is the uh, director of policy for the New York Lawyers for the Public um, Interest. He's also involved, uh, active with, with New York Renews, who, which on Wednesday broad coalition held a, a series of news events across the state to launch their campaign for next year on climate jobs and, and justice package. So, you know, welcome, Justice, and, you know, maybe just give us a brief introduction to, to New York Renews and why your group's involved. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. My name is Justin Wood. I'm the Director of Policy at New York Lawyers for the Public Interest. We're a community lawyering organization based in New York City with a focus on environmental justice, health justice, and disability justice. And for since the inception, we've been involved with New York Renews, a member of this uh, broad and diverse organization or coalition rather of 370 plus organizations across New York state in every region of the state. We, along with a lot of other members of this coalition were involved in shaping and then fighting to win uh, New York's really uh, landmark climate law called the Community uh, Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act in 2019. And since then, um, we've been really engaged in advocacy to fully implement the law to meet the essential goals of reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions and local pollution that's harming uh, the health of so many of our communities across the state. Now, we, we cover New York News quite a bit on the show. A lot of times, Bob Cohen from, from Citizen Action and you know, they've been on about talking about the New York Heat Act and the Climate Change Superfund Act and the Just Energy Transition Act. Um, but I also understand, you know, I know in the past New York News has talked about a broader $15 billion budget request, but this year they're apparently trying to focus on, you know, $1 billion at least in this budget as a down payment. Yeah, that's right. What we're really focused on is making the state's climate law a lived reality for New Yorkers starting this year. And so we know the level of investment that our state government needs to have to make sure that we're avoiding the worst outcomes of climate change and making sure we're ready for the unavoidable parts of climate change, like extreme flooding, extreme heat, Um, that we're already experiencing wildfire smoke. I mean, I I don't need to tell New Yorkers, um, these are really troubling things that we know are gonna keep happening. But we we know that the level uh, that our government needs to invest, and this is according to their own rigorous studies, is at least 10 to $15 billion a year, which is a pretty, actually a pretty small and reasonable portion of our state's economy. But what we're also focused on is Um, really making it concrete for our legislators and for New Yorkers to understand. So 
that there are projects that we could start today if the governor uh, chooses to fund them. Projects we could start next month if the governor chooses to fund them. That would both be addressing the climate crisis in communities across the state, creating jobs, a lot of jobs and good jobs in communities across the state, and actually improving everyday life. Um, so that's everything from better transportation that's affordable and efficient um, and, and allows New Yorkers to get to work, whether it's within one city or even between cities, um, as so many people commute long distances now, or something like bringing renewable energy right to our own communities and making sure that energy is, is cheaper than what we're paying for now, um, which in many cases is, is hurting ratepayers because we're paying for outdated power plants and gas lines that we don't need anymore and that cannot be a part of our future if we're going to address climate change. Now, for the most part, these are not, um, you know, new proposals. And, you know, I think there's some level of disappointment among climate activists the last couple of years that while you know, a couple good, really good bills were passed, many other good bills, like the agenda this year, was not. What, what makes us believe that this is a moment where the legislature finally comes to grip that they need a much more robust uh, agenda on the books than what they've been willing to do the last few years? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, our approach as, as an organization at New York Lawyers for the Public Interest, and I, I think the approach of, of most of the members of New Yorker News is that people want these things. People understand. We, we don't, you know, people understand that climate uh, crisis is, is here and is getting worse. I mean, I mentioned just a few of the really um, unfortunate things that New Yorkers have experienced this year. I mean, no one we, we were not prepared for what happened on June 7th when, when toxic smoke um, crossed our state and, and caught us by surprise. We do know that that's likely to happen again. Similarly, we're not surprised anymore when, for example, uh, a large portion of our transit system in, in New York City and elsewhere shuts down due to extreme flooding and, and people are uh, having to spend huge amounts of money out of their own pockets to fix their homes, um, uh, which are flooding routinely now. And I think part of the focus now is people know that the climate crisis is here, but our legislators need to hear that it's unacceptable to keep um, kicking the can down the road and that the, we need to pay for this damage somehow at the same time that we're gonna, we need to pay for the investments in the future. So, some of the bills that we're prioritizing this year, um, like the Climate Superfund Act, would do exactly the right thing by starting to put the responsibility on the wealthy corporations that have only become more profitable um, in the last few years that have caused most of the damage uh, in terms of climate change and that are directly responsible for things like people's homes and, and transit systems and roads and parks uh, being damaged by flooding on a routine basis now. All this makes sense, but I also read this morning that governor people testified to the New York State Legislature Financial Committees um, this week. And one of the points they made is even though they have a over $4 billion deficit, we're not going to raise um, you know, taxes on the wealthy and we're actually not going to cut spending on some of the big programs. Yes, they, they need to raise more money, but how do you convince, you know, particularly the governor, that, uh, you know, she needs to put a lot more money on the table for climate than she's been willing to do so far? 
Well, that's that's been a core part of what our coalition has been fighting for is to make sure that the polluters that have caused the damage and continue to profit from the status quo, even though we, we don't need the status quo, and there are a lot of examples um, we could talk about, but that those corporations that are continuing to make profit um, on a system that causes so much harm, that they're the ones to pay the fair share to increase the budget that New York State has um, for these climate investments. So this shouldn't come, doesn't need to come from uh, low and middle income New Yorkers who pay utility bills and taxes. Um, they should not continue to bear the brunt of these costs. We really need to pass legislation and make sure that there are proposals in the governor's budget and in the legislature's budget that count or, or do pass these regulations, making the biggest polluters pay their fair share of the cleanup and of the investments and the transition we need to a renewable economy. So we've been talking with uh, Justin Wood, New York Lawyers for Public Interest, um, Director of Public Policy or Director of Policy. And New York Renews released, has just released their climate jobs and, and justice package. Uh, you know, Justin, if people want to find out more about this package or, you know, even if they want to express their opinion, you know, one way or the other to the lawmakers, how, how best can they find this information in the last 45 seconds or so? Absolutely. Well, the best thing New Yorkers can do is really engage and follow New York Renews, that's NY Renews, on our website, or on social media, whether you're on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And we routinely, again, um, have the reach of a, a statewide coalition. And all of this depends on thousands of New Yorkers joining together and really um, making sure that lawmakers, regardless of what region they represent or what political party they're in, are really focused on addressing this crisis and on making sure that we don't continue to hit ordinary New Yorkers in the pocketbook to pay for this damage going forward. So we uh, routinely coordinate thousands of, of New Yorkers who want to join and we're, we're at it, to We're out of time, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, this has been uh, Justin Wood, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk um, Magazine. So unfortunately, every time a new report comes out, it seems like the timeline to avoid climate collapse is ever shorter. Um, was five years, now seems to be four, now there seems to be three. At the end of this month, the next International Conference of the Parties, or COP, is taking place in all places in Dubai. Uh, last year, the climate COP was called the last chance COP. Maybe we'll be calling this one, we're doomed COP. As Israel intensifies its ground assault on Gaza, demonstrations have broken out across America, across the USA, and the Capital District. Supporters for uh, some of the marches were Israel in support of Israel. Um, there were ra large rallies this week in Albany and D.C. Hudson Mohawk Magazine would like to cover such events if we get notified. We are, this next segment for our Peace Bucket covers the, for Mark Dunley, covers the die-in in front of Congress Paul Tonko's office in Albany that featured a reading of just some of the names of the 10,000-plus killed in Gaza. Efforts in the Capital District to stop the killings in Gaza by Israel 
with United States financial and military support, continued on Thursday, November 9th, with well over 100 individuals rallying outside of Congress member Paul Tonka's office on Dove Street in Albany, urging him to support a ceasefire. A die-in for over an hour was held on the street in front of his office as the names of some of the 10,000 killed, many of them children, were read. The Muslim community will hold a peace rally at the West Capitol Park at noon on Saturday, November 11th. We hear from, from among others, Karen Carmelli of Jewish Voices for Peace, a staff person for Congressmember Tonko, and Reverend West McNeil of the New York State Labor Religion Coalition. Carmelli, I'm with the Albany chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. We are here today to mourn the dead and fight for the living. This is the fifth public action organized by the Palestinian Rights Committee and the Albany chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace, as well as other partner organizations like Saratoga Black Lives Matter, uh, Troy for Black Lives, and Women Against War over the past month. There have also been several other local actions at the Capitol on our campuses. We have been calling personally and writing Representative Tonko and our senators, calling daily and hundreds of us from the capital region boarded buses over the weekend and stood shoulder to shoulder, 300,000 strong in Washington, D.C., in the biggest rally for Palestinian rights in this nation's history this past weekend. It's clear the people of the capital region demand a ceasefire now. Stand here today, more than 10 thousand Palestinians in Gaza have been murdered by Israel with bombs gifted to them by our government, paid for with our taxes. More than 4,000 children. Thousands more are trapped under rubble and more will die of starvation, thirst, and preventable illness as long as Israel, abetted by the U.S., continues denying life-saving necessities. When is enough enough? A Data for Progress poll released a couple of weeks ago showed that 66% of the U.S. public was strongly in favor of a ceasefire. 80% of Democrats polled agreed. 80% agreed. On October 20th, a State Department official resigned from the Biden administration due to a, quote, policy disagreement concerning our continued lethal assistance to Israel. He went on to say, quote, this administration's response and much of Congress's as well, is an impulsive reaction built on confirmation bias, political convenience, intellectual bankruptcy, and bureaucratic inertia. And just yesterday, over 100 congressional staffers, the people answering our calls every day, hearing our frustration, walked out in protest and said, quote, most of our bosses on Capitol Hill are not listening to the people they represent. We demand our leaders speak up, call for a ceasefire, a release of all hostages, and an immediate de-escalation now. Very clear, the people demand an end to Israel's bloodshed, terror, and displacement in Gaza. Not a humanitarian pause, as Congressman Tonko has called for. By not calling for a ceasefire, Tonko is failing to represent his constituents. What is a humanitarian pause? What does that even mean? 
We demand that he endorse Representative Cory Bush's ceasefire resolution immediately to prevent further loss of innocent life. Opposing genocide is always the right thing to do. The U.S. has the power to end this genocide today and demand justice and self-determination for Palestinians who have been denied their homeland and rights for 75 years. It must do so now. We are now going to start the die-in and we will read names of only a, a few of the martyrs. 10,000 names. We couldn't possibly get through them all. One year old. Mian, Yaya, Yusef Al-Astal, less than one year old. Salam, Wail, Ahmed Al-Astal, less than one year old. Zien, Al-Din, Suleiman Moin Al-Najjar, less than one year old. Yasmin, Ramirez Abdul Razak Al Masri, less than one year old. Abdel Bayouk, 17 years old. Uday Makram Auni Barba, 17 years old. Mohammed Iyad Hamdan Tota, 18 years old. Mohammed Taufik Izat Said Sakala, 18 years old. Zaki Hassan. Khalil Atahrawi, 67 years old. Mahmoud Saeed Mustafa Baraka, 67 years old. Haya Khalil Adusoki Al Omrani, 67 years old. But I just wanted to say this is a small list, but their lives matter. Their souls deserved more. We are not numbers. The American government, people, we are not numbers. We deserve dignity and the right to self-determination. Free Palestine! A representative from the, the congressman uh, here um, that would like to make a, a few words and while she's coming up to say a few things, we'd also like to share with her to, to give to Representative Tonko um, the the poster here that we've made um, of just an even smaller number of the people that we've lost since October 7th um, and it, attached to it, in case you haven't had a chance to see it, is um, a diary entry from Plestia, who is a journalist currently on the ground in Gaza, um, writing about just one, one day in her life there now. Uh, so we, we would like to give this to you to share with Representative Tonko to remind him, as, as was mentioned before, that these are not just numbers, they're people who have lives and aspirations and dreams. So thank you, I'll, I'll pass it over to you. Well, thank you for the opportunity to address you here this evening. Uh, first and foremost, um, on behalf of Congressman Tonko, who's currently uh, on his way back from legislative business in Washington, D.C. I want to, on behalf of our office, take this opportunity to thank you all for being here this evening, for uh, expressing your grief, for sharing your views, uh, and taking the time to, again, join with Congressman Tonko and our team in, um, in sharing how important this issue is to you, um, how important this issue is to our community, and for practicing 
um, a very important component of what makes a democracy, just sharing, sharing your voice and, and showing up. So thank you for that. Um, just very briefly, I'd like to share Congressman Tonko's top concerns are avoiding further deaths of innocent civilians and facilitating the return of all hostages, which is why he has called for an immediate stop to the violence in Gaza and continues to call for aid workers to be allowed to deliver the food, water, medical care, and resources needed in Gaza. The Congressman continues to monitor the situation closely and is deeply appreciative of the many constituents who are raising their voices on this issue. So again, I appreciate the opportunity to gather here with you this evening on Congressman Tonka's behalf. And like I said, my colleague Monica and I are here to hear your concerns and to share your feedback with Congressman Tonko. He has blood on his hands. Blood on his hands. Reverend West McNeil, here with the Labor Religion Coalition of New York State and the New York State Poor People's Campaign. And just to lift up what others just said, uh, we appreciate the congressperson sending someone, sending a message. We are very clear here, what is needed is a ceasefire, which is yeah. more than just a pause, it's more than just a, a stop in violence, we need a ceasefire. Right. And there's a resolution that exists clear about that, and we need him to add his name and speak up clearly and publicly about the need for a ceasefire. That is what will prevent further loss of life. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So what I found particularly interesting was an article in the recent Washington Post where many of the permanent uh, officials of the State Department um, actually wrote a memo uh, expressing their dismay about the position of the Biden administration and the Secretary of State about what they are doing uh, in terms of supporting Israel. Apparently that is a, allowed in the Department of State. Um, members, staff are allowed to express dissent and it's pr pretty unprecedented as to how many of them said uh, the refusal to call to protect um, civilians and protect children and to rein in Israel is unacceptable and is causing long-term political damage to the United States. And these are the permanent Department of State staff. Um, we try to do our weekly peace bucket, uh, first show every Wednesday. Uh, but for those, who just for those just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, a special somebody you see at the bus stop. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. It's a Wonderful Life has been adapted into an anonymous theater performance. To understand what that means and how this will transform this tradi uh, traditional story, this classic story, I speak with Christoph Di Maria.
Wilkem's Players, and Creative Action Unlimited are performing an anonymous theater version of It's a Wonderful Life at the Arts Center of the Capital Region on December 9th at 7.30 p.m. And I'm now joined by Christoph Di Maria, co-founder and director of development at Wilkem's Players. Welcome back. Thank you, Sina. It's wonderful to be here. So let's start with the synopsis. So this is a fun fact. I've never seen It's a Wonderful Life. I know, I'm one of the few people. So please tell me, what what is it about? Well, very briefly, it follows the story of George, who is an everyman in the 1940s in the United States in Bedford Falls, who begins to get disenthused with life and wonders what it might be like without him. There are numerous socioeconomic struggles and internal struggles that surround him and the other people that are close to him in his life. And Joseph and Clarence, angels from on high, decide that they are going to be interlocutors in George's life and show him perhaps a path to personal growth and transformation which takes place. And Clarence might just get his wings and become a real angel. Oh, interesting. The idea of what might like be without you, that's, I feel like, a question that we can all very much relate to. And um, as we mentioned in the beginning, this is an anonymous theater version. What does that mean? Yes. So this is exciting. This has never before happened in the Capital Region, to my knowledge, or my co-director Michael Kennedy's knowledge. This is an experimental form of theater in which there are no rehearsals. The actors have never met. They are simply cast, they take their work home with them and study their part, and then they will deliver their first line from the audience, and only then will they take the stage to be revealed as an actor in this play, and they will learn who else is in the play through the same process. This particular performance is going to be a staged reading a la live radio play, so it's going to have all the trappings of Foley art, which are uh, live produced sound effects. It's going to have live music. And of course, it's going to have a cast of 12 people performing a myriad of roles to retell this beautiful Christmas story. Fascinating. I didn't realize that was a, a thing that existed in theater. And I probably many other listeners are also new to this concept. So why do this for It's a Wonderful Life? Ah, excellent question. So one, it's a very relatable play that folks know. Um, It is one that even if this is a complete and utter disaster, which it could be, and, you know, sometimes car wrecks are beautiful, right? So even if it's a disaster, it's going to be so much fun. You know the story. You know what's going to happen. So therefore, that allows you to kind of relax into the form of theater that we're presenting and fully immerse yourself in this anonymous world and enjoy it. Um, We love the idea that we're sprinkling a little chaos and uncertainty into what is something that should be like very, you know, cut and dry, same thing done every year. You will never have seen It's a Wonderful Life like this. Especially because this is like the uh, TV program that is every year. So it's like inserting a lot of freshness into this cherished tradition. That's right. I mean, um, a very wise person, our artistic director of Wilkham's Players, Sandra Boynton, told me, with art, you can change two things, form and content. You cannot change them at the same time. 
because then it will become unrecognizable. So we have taken the same content and morphed the form into something that is fresh and new. And I think it breathes new life into it. And also kind of funny to muse on how a play about what life would be like without you begins with anonymity. Yeah. Any audience member could be an actor. Fantastic. My colleague, Carolyn Tennant, she was wondering if there are some critiques of the original version. The original, I believe, is from 1947. Is that right? I do believe that's correct. Um, boy, critique. Or does this new, fresh version allow for like a fresh take to a storyline that might be a little bit dated? I see. So the text has certainly all been pulled from the original script and adapted into this radio play version. I think that the presentation of it means something different in our modern worlds with the contemporary awareness. I mean, one certainly is the, and I'll put a trigger warning out here that we're talking about suicide, um, that George, you know, considers ending his life. And that has had a wonderful support system grow around it in recent years with things like um, 988, which I believe is the suicide hotline. And so that's one critique I would say that like there's a social awareness in addition to this feel-good story. We can also say that the script itself is going to contain some tropes of life in America, of capitalism hard at work in the booming mid 20th century that are going to feel a little stale and going to perhaps uh, turn our minds to seeing where those patterns still exist in the worlds around us and recognizing how they do or do not serve us and realize perhaps that not only does George have the power for great transformation and personal growth through this and this divine intervention, Right, because remember, this is a play that's also seated in the Western Christian canonical tradition with angels and the like, that um, you as people can also band together and become involved. So you mentioned George and the angels. Are those the only characters that are particularly important? And are there also particular scenes that resonate with you or are important? Oh, boy. I mean, no, certainly they are not the only important characters. We have... Violet and Mary, um, two of George's predominant relationships. We also have uh, Joseph, who is Clarence's senior angel. We have an entire cast of characters that is quite literally the people of Bedford Falls, right? And it's important to remember that George is one of the everymen, right? He is he is part of a community. And so while this is, yes, a story of a middle-aged white man, of which is an overtold narrative, even now, we are getting to the idea that many, many more people surround his life and work with him. Everyone will know the famous bridge scene, and that is obviously very impactful. Um, we can also talk about the boardroom scene in which all of these bank customers who have found themselves kind of at their rope's end are fighting for their lives. And, you know, Look around. We've got uh, the highest rates of inflation that we've ever seen here in this country right now uh, in, in at least my lifetime. And we have a number of other 
uh, international challenges, though those are certainly not addressed in something like It's a Wonderful Life. And we have um, the struggle of people to just get by simply, whether it's quality of life, whether it's minimum wage, whether it's unionizing and labor. There are a lot of interesting tenets we could pull out of this and explore further where we'd have all the time in the world, Sina. So since I have you, I'm interested, what is it like for you and Michael Kennedy to be creating this? Especially, as you mentioned, the actors don't know who each other are. So you and Michael are the really the connectors of everything. Yeah, it's very weird to be the gatekeeper of all information related to this play as far as the actors and the audience. And the amount of trust that we have in them has grown exponentially simply because we are not having any rehearsals. We have no idea what they're going to bring. We have no influence other than what we have already shared and what we have entrusted to all of these people. And I'll also say entrusted to the audience, because like I mentioned, there's live Foley and music. They're also going to be cue cards in which the audience is going to be able to participate as characters in the stories. This is immersive, this is interactive. Um, and it's it's very fun. It's very exciting. It is a bit standing on the precipice, looking over and feeling yourself held up by just a, a gentle wind. Oh, how lovely. So I'm excited. Uh, where can we find more information about this performance taking place on December 9th at the Arts Center of the Capital Region? Absolutely. So there is an event Facebook page, and that is going to be under It's an Anonymous Wonderful Life. You can also find more information on my social media account at Raliacci, that's R-A-G-L-I-A-C-C-I, as well as the Will Kemp's Players social media handles and website. That's Will Kemp's Players, W-I-L-L-K-E-M-P-E-S, players.com and at Will Kemp's Players, and Creative Action Unlimited, at Creative Action Unlimited, and creativeactionunlimited.com. Christoph, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for exciting us about this upcoming performance. Yes, thank you so much for having us. We look forward to seeing you on December 9th at 7.30 at the Arts Center. Thank you. Thank you. So those of us here at Hudson Mohawk Magazine get to experience our own version of It's a Wonderful Life with Cena departing for two weeks, and we're all relieved that she's back. Not sure which one of the angels got their wings during her time off. But the uh, Wilkem players have more performances taking place in the beginning of December. So we will hear more from Christoph, the Maria, in future episodes. And our next segment is an interview from 2020. Guy Schaefer and Livonia Mallory interviewed Joseph Jenkins, author of the Humanure Handbook, the preeminent resource on composting human waste. Up next, um, it is our pleasure to welcome to the show Joseph Jenkins, author of the Humanure Handbook. Um, and I'm actually forgetting the subtitle on that. Um, uh, are you there, Joseph? I am, and you don't want to say the subtitle. <laughs> we'll get in trouble for it. Um, so the Humanor Handbook. Uh, so the Humanor Handbook, for those of you who are not familiar, is the preeminent resource on composting human waste. 
um, widely cited, widely translated, hugely influential in the world of composting. Um, and uh, Mr. Jenkins, before we get started, I just want to say that I was so excited when Livonia told me that she was reaching out to you. I'm a huge compost fan, um, and I've been super curious about humanure for a while, even though I've only barely been involved in that. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, great. A fellow composter. That's, that's, <laughs> that's nice to hear. <laughs> yeah, big time. Yeah, we can, we can catch up more. Um, so uh, first off, can you tell us, uh, let's kind of start big picture. Can you tell us, well, okay. Can you start off just by telling us what humanure is? Humanure is uh, human manure. It's mm -hmm. a term that I coined uh, because all the other words for that substance, uh, well, you can't say them on some of them on the radio, for example. Uh, and you can't really discuss the topic very easily at dinner with grandma using uh, the old terminology. So humanure is an innocuous uh, term meaning human manure or what people, human bodies uh, excrete um, as a result of their digestive systems. So it's human excrement and human urine. And uh, recycled for re constructively recycled for agricultural purposes. That separates <clears throat> that that separates the, the concept from human waste. Human waste is uh, well, a cigarette butt you fling out your car window. That's human waste. But uh, people generally refer to human waste as human excrement, hmm. which is wasted and when it's wasted of course it is waste but human ore is not wasted it's completely recycled nothing is wasted um, when you use a compost toilet system so there, therefore a new term had to be coined and that's where human ore comes from right yeah as we say in the compost world waste is a verb um, so in the in the human ore handbook you you know you make a, a beautiful uh, call for um, for the wider adoption of, of you know thinking about it as humanure um, and finding better ways to recycle it. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about how the world would be improved, um, how the world would be different if people composted humanure instead of using flush toilets? Well, right off the bat, there are two and a half billion with a V people who don't have toilets. Mm -hmm. So right off the bat, two and a half billion people could have toilets if they knew that they could have a, a compost toilet. Uh, I've been to 64 countries so far, many of them multiple times, and one of the most startling things about teaching people how to make a compost toilet is that they say they never would ever have dreamed that such a thing existed. They never heard of it. Um, and I've been doing it for 43 years, so it's second nature to me. But if, if, if when I'm in, say, if, for example, in Nicaragua, in a village where everybody open defecates, and we show them how to make a compost toilet, so the toilet's inside their dwelling. And, um, you know, they're taught we train them the whole process, and they're just flabbergasted that they can actually have a toilet that doesn't smell, doesn't pollute, 
doesn't need electricity, doesn't need water, and they can have it right beside their bed where they sleep as opposed to having to wander out into a field or outside in the dark or in the rain to uh, answer the call of nature. So that right off the bat, that can be a huge change in the world. Now, uh, if you want me to elaborate and be more specific, when human ore is recycled, a whole lot of water pollution is prevented. Mm. Every time a toilet is flushed, uh, actually every time a toilet is used, water is polluted. Now, water has to go someplace. Somebody has to deal with it. The effluent from wastewater treatment plants is still polluted, uh, and uh, there's nothing that you can do about it. It's just impossible to completely clean water that's been uh, gone, you know, that's been used in a toilet. <clears throat> Secondly, uh, there's a ton of soil fertility that goes down the drain mm -hmm. when a water toilet is used. Uh, and it is just going to waste. That's where the human waste comes from, the term. Uh, that soil fertility could all be recycled. So imagine if a dairy farmer with a herd of cattle flushed all the cattle manure down a drain. Uh, other farmers would think he's nuts because they need that manure to fertilize the fields, to grow the food that the cow, cattle eat. So um, we don't. We just flush ours, you know, down the toilet, and uh, it goes to waste, and we buy artificial fertilizers. Uh, so we could have greatly enhanced soil fertility, a lot less pollution, if human ore was recycled on a wider scale uh, around the world. But more importantly right now, in, in my opinion, is people can have toilets, toilets who don't have them all at all. That is, the, like the way that you're framing it, human ore seems like such an amazing game changer for so many people in so many different positions. So I'm really excited that you're doing this advocacy work. Um, well, you know, you, I, I looked at it as the last great untapped resource. Hmm. As long the as there's frontier people. Of recycling. Yeah, as long, as long as there are people, there will be human ore. Hmm. And um, okay. it has value, you know. Uh, every time you use a compost toilet, it's like putting a nickel in a piggy bank. You're actually collecting something of value that will come back and reward you later because it turns into compost, and compost grows food. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting concept. Uh, in general, though, around the world, most of the human ore, uh, mountains, mountains of human ore, hundreds of thousands of millions of tons are all going to waste. Going to waste and also polluting the water around the, yep. the streams and the villages all over the world. Um, yeah. yeah, the rivers, so you know, um, lakes, uh, estuaries, <clears throat> groundwater. My most recent edition of the Human or Handbook, uh, I, I dwell a lot more on those issues. Mm. Right. You know, water pollution. Because it's not just water. You're not just polluting water with human or 
or human waste, let's call it, because it's being wasted. But everything that goes into your body that comes out again, like pharmaceuticals and drugs and uh, anti- antibiotics and chemo drugs, I mean, all that stuff comes comes out and goes in, gets into the water. It's incredible how much uh, how much chemical and, and pharmaceutical effluents there are that people aren't even aware of. So uh, we've got about 30 seconds left, but I wanted to just see if you had any quick words of advice for people who are interested in trying to practice human or composting in suburban homes or in cities. Well, yeah, you know, uh, the first thing I would say is get a copy of my book, The Human or Handbook, and I'm not mm-hmm. trying to sell it because you can read it free online mm-hmm. at humanorhandbook.com. Um, you can read the entire thing cover to cover for free. It's been free online since 2000 for 20 years, um, and people can read it. And if they, you know, if they're interested enough, they'll buy a copy or buy uh, or download a copy. You can download a copy as well. So uh, get a hold of the book, Human or Handbook. It's in the fourth edition now, and there's a ton of information in there that uh, pertains to everybody. Listen, Mr. Jenkins, thank you so much um, for joining us. He is author of Humanure Handbook. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us here at Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We really appreciate it so much. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I'll just note when I built our house in 1985, was not able to convince my partner to uh, go with the compost toilet. Hope. <laughs> is internal however so this is first broadcast on may 22nd 2020 and if you want to get access to the book the website is human manure handbook human newer human newer h-u-m-a-n-u-r-e handbook.com yeah interesting so our volunteers dedicate many hours to the sanctuary and to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and we're always excited when volunteer work leads to bigger opportunities. Kaylin McPherson is a regular voice on this program, and we, invite him, we invited him to talk with us about what this opportunity uh, at Hudson Mohawk Magazine has been like and how this gave him the skill set to be hired as the WAMC control room operator. Thanks for joining us. Hi, how are you? Wonderful. Great to have you. So you have produced a series of interviews. You've produced a series interviewing radio producers from around the country. And you began your work uh, training for radio at the New School. So why is radio exciting for you? Uh, Sorry, I had a frog in my throat. Uh, I actually didn't want to go into radio at first, right out of high school. I went into college and was going to go aviation and go work in aviation, but quickly realized this is not what I want to do. I don't want to. And so it took me a little bit, but I found that I liked acting a little bit, but I didn't want to be on stage. I have terrible stage, right? And so I did some research and I found that Radio is the best of both worlds. You get a little bit of acting, you get a little bit of production, you get a little bit of this. 
And uh, so I kind of fell in love with it. So your radio series, um, Radio is Dying, you, or is Radio Dying, you interviewed radio producers from around the country. You know, what are some of the things you heard from others about the importance of radio? I heard that, yes, we're having troubles looking into the future of radio, but it's mostly with that younger generation that we're, we haven't figured out how to reach this younger generation because they're not listening in their cars. They're not listening in conventional ways as the older generation was. I still listen in my radio, in my car. I know I do too. I do too. I listen in my car. I'm not, I'm just saying it's just changing. And the other thing is a lot of the stations I interviewed were low power stations. And so one of the things you have to think about with a low power station is how do you still have this, the same voice as a big full power station. And a lot of these people, they did not just radio, they had art associated with it, or they had a performance space, or they had music or whatever, you know, what uh, on and so forth. Mm, right, like the sanctuary, it's not the radio, the radio is not the main thing of the sanctuary, it's actually a very small, small portion of it. Um, which is how we're able to sustain it. So much of your work at Hudson Mohawk Magazine has been as an engineer. Can you take us through the experience of being trained as an engineer and operating our programming and now training other engineers to work for Hudson Mohawk Magazine? So the first thing I want to say is I started the new school in 2020. I had one week of in-person training at the new school and then we went remote. So I have barely been on a board. I had barely been on the board my whole time in radio. And so I came in and I started hosting and I knew that I, if I was ever going to make it, I needed some board experience. So I kind of worked my way. I did little things here and there. And eventually I made it to the board. Now with the board, when I say board, I mean the soundboard from the mics to the sound you hear from the interviews to the music that you hear at the start of the show, it all goes through through the engineer uh, and um, at first I will be honest with you I was not good um, it took a lot of time to learn because um, if you do make a mistake most of the time listeners won't be able to hear it but if you make a big enough mistake the listeners will be able to tell now I've I've realized training somebody that how I thought I would train somebody is different than how that, how I should train somebody. You know, I thought I could just give them all this information and let them run with it. But, uh, no, it's, it's, you have to take them every step of the way and, uh, and really sit down and make sure they understand everything of the board. So now that you're at, uh, WAMC, you know, what are the type of, I don't know, the skills that you're learning over there that you didn't pick up from, from Hudson Mohawk. And is there anything you suggest we should be changing based now in your knowledge so, of how WAMC operates? WAMC, as somebody, I'm a control room operator, so I don't just operate the board there. I operate the board not for just one show, but for many shows. I also make sure our transmitters are up and running. We have, what is it? Uh, we've got 20 some transmitters that broadcast to seven different states 
So if one of them is out, I probably will hear from a listener who calls in. Uh, I make sure that, you know, on the weekdays, when I'm on my weekday shift, that we have smooth transitions from one show to another. We, the hosts are audible that they have the cuts. I have the cuts ready to play for them. Um, if we have for the round table, if someone's calling in, I have them pulled up and ready to go. Uh, um, make sure we have music ready for certain things. And, 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 uh, on the weekends, it's a little bit more chill. It's more pre-recorded programs. So I play it off a playlist or, you know, once in a while, like Saturday nights, we have Hudson River Sampler which is live, but I throw it to her and she takes over the board. Uh, the other one that is actually one of the harder challenging ones is uh, Live with Linda Live, which broadcasts Live with Linda broadcast every week, every Sunday night. But at the, at, at the last Sunday of every month, it's Live with Linda Live. And we go broadcast live from Linda. So I'm communicating from my, my space in WAMC across the street, telling them, hey, we're going right to you. Get ready. And... Uh, yeah. Right. Well, we have just a minute left. Um, so you mentioned that engineering is difficult. Um, how easy is it to get involved as an engineer, specifically here, as you are training some engineers for Hudson Mohawk Magazine? At the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we have dedicated staff who will make it very or very easy to start as an engineer between me and Cena and even Joan will be happy or or will pitch in to help. So we have so many. I'll just say volunteers. that you and Joan are volunteers. So staff, but yes. all, all the comrades here, we're all, there's a great support system. Yes. And, and if you have questions, we're always available to answer them. You know, we're not going to just say, here's the board, have fun. Bye. We're going to make sure you're comfortable with the board. You know, we're to make sure you have no questions. We're going to make sure I'm getting the uh, time to go. So I'm going to flip it back to the host. Yeah, it's been great to talk with you, Mark. Well, that's our show, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll just say thank you, Kaylin, for joining us. And we're so excited to see you moving uh, up and continuing to work with us. So that's, we're really excited about that. So like Mark said, that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. I'm Mark Dunley, engineer with Joan Eason. And we want to thank uh, Guy Schaefer and Lavonia Mallory for that pre-recorded segment. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.